Good day to all you listeners out there, and welcome to another episode of the In Search podcast. On today's show, you'll hear a fascinating comparative historical sociological analysis of competition and its impact on state building and development. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Good day, listeners, and welcome back to InSearch. I'm so excited today to be joined by my colleague, Emery Amasale, who is uh, going to share his very different uh, research with us than what we've been kind of exposed to here so far. Uh, how are you doing, Emery? Uh, I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, so, Emery, you don't live in Toronto, right? No, I'm in, uh, living in Montreal right now. Uh, going to McGill University, same department, sociology. So Emery's a PhD candidate in the same program that I'm in, on the sociology program, and that's how we know each other. Um, so how's Montreal? Well, the classic tag is cold, but <laughs> we were just talking about the sleepy uh, kind of pace, which is appreciated. Right. Montreal is a much smaller city than Toronto. And, and um, you know, I think for people who've lived in both cities, it's really interesting to kind of come and go. And I know you also know a lot of people here in Toronto, so you come to Toronto visit often. Um, how would you characterize the difference between the two cities? <laughs> oh, touchy, touchy. <laughs> Indeed. No, I mean, I, I think, yeah, the pace is one difference. The other difference is, I think, I find... Uh, Toronto's more business, uh, which kind of fits in with the pace too. But Montreal's a bit more kind of, uh, I don't know how to, beatnik in some ways. Very true. I think Toronto is more industrious. Um, you know, a, a lot of people make that comparison of the working to live versus the living to work uh, for Toronto versus Montreal, respectively, uh, which is really true, right? I think in Montreal, people are industrious, especially when it comes to uh, having fun, right? So you put up a festival, it's up you know, within within the, the night, you wake up and everything's decorated, everything's ready to go, people are ready to party. It's a lot more like community oriented as well. Whereas in Toronto, I find um, it's more kind of neoliberal. People are in their own pockets, uh, but ready to work, ready to put in, uh, you know, their nine to fives or whatever it is, you know, the nature of work is changing anyway, but um, just, just work and industry oriented in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in you know, Montreal too, people work, but work to a certain level, and they're like, we're happy with this, kind of. Uh, yeah, that that is a difference. But I like both cities, to be honest. I'm not going to pick one over the other. Fair enough, and I think you're probably gaining popularity with both listeners <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. from both cities by doing that, right? <laughs> uh, all right, great. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your background. So. I would characterize you as a historian. Would you Would you characterize yourself as a historian? I am somewhat of a historian. My background is uh, political science and history in undergrad. I went to Queens. Then uh, wanting to learn more and just being curious led me to, like many people, maybe in academia, led me to my master's. And I guess I found political science to be a bit too state-centric. It was, um, IR is very dominant, so is comparative politics, the state as the primary unit of analysis. And that kind of didn't sit that well with me, so I started switching to sociology, uh, where I got a good training in methods, and uh, which kind of brought me 
ironically, to comparative historical sociology, where the main unit of analysis, again, the state. So, uh, but I've been, in, in, I've been approaching it from a different perspective, I guess. And all my experiences, I see them as leading me to this point. Okay. All right. Great. And so what would you say draws you to the historical aspects, at least, of your work? I like seeing connections across time. And I think maybe one of the things that attracted me to learning uh, about politics and our society was kind of tearing down those preconceptions we have. And one way of doing this is seeing that they're all contingent on space and time. Uh, so I personally experienced this in my undergrad when I was had a very nationalist education in Turkey uh, and learning about nationalism and how it's a modern phenomenon really upended my world. And so history is a tool of breaking down uh, some of your preconceptions or taking you out of the ideology which you take for granted. Right. And I think taking you out of the preconceptions that are, I think, I think there's something to be said about looking at history as an objective measure of um, circumstances or events, right? So we tend to think that, um, you know, people would behave in a certain way or that they ought to behave in a certain way. But then when we look at history, it objectively tells us a different story, right? Or history, mm -hmm. literally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. So your research then is a comparative historical sociological analysis or study of uh, the notion of competition and ideology, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. So let's transition then into the first question. So sure. the big nutshell question, what is your research about? Um, good question. I mean, the main thesis is that competition has socio-structural consequences. And I'm not saying good or bad. I guess I am just trying to dissect how competition could be analyzed on a state level and a societal level. And then, so this question of competition, and, and we can maybe go back into this a little bit further when we talk about, you know, the, the literature that you're contributing to, the conversations that you're co contributing to, the way that you're looking at competition, is that something that could be then transferred to, you know, um, uh, competitions in economics, competition across different disciplines, or is it specifically in this context of coloniality that you're looking at competition? I think it could be exported to different things and maybe partially to kind of talk about the later conversations we might have. This has been dominated by economists and I find sociology feels this pressure more than any other science because economists have, I don't want to say infiltrated, maybe sounds too aggressive, but they have taken on sociological questions, but they still have that economist lens. Uh, the famous example I always think about is Gary Becker and marriage markets, looking at marriage like a market, like a transaction, right? And maybe this is a bit of my pushback is there is something about competition that is important for ideology and change, but having more of a sociological lens uh, for this process. 
Absolutely. So, okay, so you're saying competition is socio-structural and we need to look at the socio-structural impact of competition. Mm -hmm. That's your main argument that you're mm -hmm. making. So, and your case that you're looking at um, is? So there's, in three articles, one of them deals with competition between nation states, especially during the 19th century. And the other one is looking at competition between different educational institutions. So let's delve right in then to your first article. So tell us the main argument of Article 1. Uh, the main argument of Article 1 is that traditionally people have talked about colonialism as having negative consequences. Uh, if we extend this further, the argument is that somehow non-colonized countries got it easy. What I try to show in this article is that it was not easy. In fact, they were placed under different kinds of pressures. Pressures to remain independent, pressures to be accepted as part of a civilized society. And so they were caught in these buffer zones of, you know, they are not a colony, so the justification of colonialism was often, you are not civilized enough, let me come and civilize you. So they escaped from that, plus they were developed enough to resist Western intrusion. But they were also not included into this club, this League of Nations that was forming around that time. Uh, so all of this causes a pressure, I think, for aggressive nationalizing and aggressive state building. And the argument, the extension of this argument is most of these countries have gone down the route of aggressive nationalism and state building, which in turn has provoked ethnic minorities to rebel. So it's a mixed method paper that shows that these non-colonized countries are more likely to experience secessionist wars and it's kind of providing a historical background to as to why this might be the case. Great. Okay. So give us a little bit of context about aggressive nationalism. Mm -hmm. So tell us for the people who are not really familiar with nationalism as a um, social scientific kind of uh, unit of analysis. Mm -hmm. um, what do you mean when you say nationalism? And what mm -hmm. do you mean when you say aggressive nationalism? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, nationalism, I think the simplest and one of the best definitions out there is Ernest Gellner's, which is that there should be some equality, the idea that there should be some equality between the nation, the group of people, however defined, and the state. And the problem is, as this is rarely the case. So states adopt different strategies to deal with this incongruence. Uh, in Europe, where this idea of nationalism was born, uh, the congruence was achieved through ethnic cleansing, World War II, uh, public schooling, military conscription. And here's where the idea of nationalism gets interesting is when it becomes exported to other places. So what I would define aggressive nationalism as is not willing to compromise on this congruence and imposing a monolithic identity 
onto the state. Right. So in this first article, then you would say that, you know, in this world stage against the backdrop of this world stage that has um, taken in colonized states uh, as part of this League of Nations, um, non-colonized states are faced with a pressure to have their own identity and um, to, to either blend in or stand out. And you're basically arguing that standing out is the option that they've taken via aggressive nationalism. I don't know if they had much choice. <laughs> this is the other bit, I guess, because, and this is where historical and comparative research gets interesting because there is no purely natural experiment. These states and nations are who they are because of their historic legacies. So the Ottoman Empire was not colonized. Qajar dynasty was not colonized, although we could get into what colonialism and non-colonialism is. Qing dynasty, again, directly, what I mean by colonization is the presence of European troops, overseas European colonial powers in your territory, regulating your affairs. So this was not present in these countries. But these overseas powers also chose not to go into these countries because they had a certain level of state history, heritage, power. Uh, a lot of historical research shows there was not much economic difference between the Chinese and the Europeans around 1600s. It's only when the Europeans starts going into this race of getting as many possessions as they want that we see this huge gap form. Right. And so are those the three uh, cases that you're looking at, the Ottoman Empire, the Qing Dynasty, and the Qajar Dynasty? Uh, it's, it's more there's match cases. So I, I use Thailand as an example. I use Ottoman Empire Turkey, Siam Thailand. Uh, the Qing Empire alongside Qajar is also part of the abbreviated cases. So a lot of the national historiographies of these disparate places recognize that there was some sort of pressure that was going on during state building, but I guess they do not speak to each other. So one role I see that I'm fulfilling here is drawing these connections that have not been drawn. And specifically, I find all of these cases remarkably similar in some cases, in some respects. Uh, so the Ottoman Empire experienced defeat at the hands of Western powers. You could say the same thing for Qajar, for Qing Dynasty, for Siam. Uh, you could say it for Russia. Russia is kind of a peripheral case, but during this time, it's really acting like this outsider as well. And uh, what happens is there are two phases, I think. The first is recognizing that you are inferior, which causes a crisis in these empires. So the first solution is modernize the bureaucracy, modernize military, then bureaucracy, keep up to pace with these European powers. And when that fails, the second solution becomes usually military personnel finding the reform efforts of the empire lacking and taking over the country in some way. So uh, this happened uh, with Ataturk and the Young Turks in Ottoman Empire. 
Reza Shah in Iran. Uh, it happened in 1932 coup in Thailand. Uh, we could say the same thing for China and Chiang Kai-shek, KMT, uh, the nationalist Chinese movement that was forming. Again, they all were reacting against this empire that could not cope with the modern world. Right. Um, and of course, you know, to your point, and I think this is something that you're, you're probably also discussing in the article, is that there are social consequences to this, right? So there are, there are grave social consequences to these actions um, by these leaders. Of course, yeah. They wanted a modern, civilized nation, quote-unquote, and this was to be achieved aggressively because that was the condition of becoming independent. And this is a theme you see in the speeches of a lot of these foundational figures. They recognize that the price of not modernizing is becoming a colony because that's how it was justified. And, uh, well, another interesting case is uh, Afghanistan, actually. Afghanistan during this period, contrary to our preconceptions, was an aggressively nationalizing, modernizing state. And uh, similar to Iran, uh, the president of Afghanistan traveled to Turkey to learn from the experience of an Islamic country that was undergoing this transition. So give us examples. So like, what are these modernization efforts? What do they look like? And, and how do they put pressures on the civilians, the people that are living mm -hmm. in these nations at the time? Yeah, well, I guess one theme that emerges is there is no tolerance for diversity. So that often accompanies uh, language laws, dress codes, so anything that deviates from this ideal modern image of a citizen is treated harshly. And each nation defines it in its own terms because the, all the ideas of a modern civilized proper blank is contextual. So in Turkey, uh, where religion was kind of controlled, this controlled form of secularism, and where the core identity was based on Turkish identity, the Kurds got excluded. But in Thailand, where it was Thai Buddhist identity, the core identity, we have the Malay Muslims in the South who get discriminated against. So it's very contextual, but it's all about deviations. And the same thing happens. You try to control these deviations in a certain way. What do you do? You have a dress code, you have a public campaign saying speak Thai, which was a campaign after the 1932 coup. You have a very similar one in Turkey, citizens speak Turkish. So campaigns to stop other identities from entering into the public sphere. So I'll pose this to you as a question because I'm more familiar with the Iranian case than the other cases, right? Is that in trying to build a, a nationalist identity for Reza Shah, what he actually ended up doing was erasing um, what people understood as their nationalist Iranian identity, right? So um, 
you know, the removal or the insistence of removing the Muslim identity or religion and becoming more secular for Reza Shah was very important in building an independent state. But what that actually ended up doing was removing elements of what a lot of Iranians considered to be the core of their identity, which was their Muslim identity, right? So I'm wondering if you're finding these contradictions in your other cases as well. Oh, 100%. I think this is all a battle over who is the people, who gets to define who the nation, the people are. And one interesting, another parallel, though I haven't got into this as much as I'd like to, is that these aggressive nationalizers often provoke resurgent populist movements. I mean, in Turkey, we get the AKP. In Iran, we got the Islamic Revolution. In China, we have this rising Chinese nationalism and Confucianism being highlighted. And Thailand, Taksin regime, you could say the same thing. So there, yes, these secularizers reacted against empires, but then we get another group who says, you do not represent the people. The people means X, Y, Z, which is often another component that was suppressed during that nation building. Right. So we talked about the aims of the modernization. We talked a little bit about the social consequences. What were the measures that were taken? What were the uh, military measures? What were the economic mm -hmm. measures? How were these modernization uh, goals um, put, put in full, full throttle into these countries? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of, uh, for those familiar with James Scott's work, this could be categorized as high modernism which usually comes at a moment of crisis and all of these states experience some sort of foundational crisis, not just an identity and who we are, but also defeat and war, revolution, multiple, you know, famines, civil war in the case of China. And so I find that in moments like this, the solution to the crisis is sought in extremes. And, uh, so these thinkers, another common thread linking them is uh, a lot of them attached themselves to the ideologies that were popular at the time. Gustave Le Bon and crowd psychology, which inherently has this distaste or fear that crowds that come together act irrationally. So uh, distrust of the public, the people, the crowds. Uh, also, uh, social Darwinist ideologies were very prevalent amongst a lot of these elites. When you look at their reading habits, when you look at their journals, a lot of this comes out. So to go to your question of what did they do, public education obviously had a central role, teach them a single language, teach them a single way of being, and also imposing these rational models, rational design of cities, of countries, um, tearing down the old fabric. And, uh, well, <laughs> there's a lot of through line running through these different cases, but one thing I also find interesting is they all reject or can't accept past atrocities in some way. There is this weird anxiety that comes. And in IR, they have called this uh, ontological inse insecurity. Mm -hmm. So something about your identity being uh, disconnected. Right. 
Right. Okay, so let's come back to the competition question mm-hmm. within this first article, right? So so you have these modernizing states, aggressively modernizing states that are by any means necessary, you know, at, at the cost of uh, whoever's not willing to listen um, or, you know, stand in or fall in line. Um, they are, you know, trying to build these nationalist identities. And this is the competition then that you're referring to against the colonizing states? Yeah, I think the competition here is competition with what we consider the Western world and uh, trying to stay independent and free. And I guess maybe they're not competing directly as we would like two equal parties, but it's some sort of unequal competition that is taking place. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a handful of countries that have not been colonized. So this is a very, there are rare cases out of the 160 odd nation states that we have today, only you know 12 countries could be considered non-colonized. So all of them had were bordering uh, colonizing states. When you think of Thailand, Thailand was couched in between the French Empire and the British Empire. Turkey had France and England, the mandates of Syria and Iraq just to its south. Uh, and you could enumerate this for all the other cases. They felt the presence and they had to react in some way. Right. And do you think, what was the reverse impact? So what was the, so you've told us about the modernization impact Mm -hmm. for these non-colonized states, but then what was the impact on the European empires colonizing the rest of the world um, Mm -hmm. and looking at these outliers? Was there an impact there as well? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the impact is, well, birth of international law and birth of the international society. And it's not a clear linear story, but it's about inclusion and exclusion and who has power. And a lot of the roots of the geopolitical world we live in were at that moment. It's after World War I and World War II where we have to renegotiate these world orders. And so the impact was maybe one thing I'd like to <laughs> think about is calling calling the overseas European colonies out on some of their ideals. So we get the exact same thing with race politics and multiculturalism in Western societies. Western societies are built on these ideals of freedom, pluralism. But we see in reality that such ideologies fail when they are challenged significantly, right? The inclusion of Muslim minorities in Western societies really goes at the core of, well, perhaps not freedom for everyone, perhaps not equality for everyone. And I think maybe something similar happened in the international realm where we had to question inclusion into an international society. And those, those ideals had to be renegotiated. Right. And have you, relatedly, have you looked at, um, did the modernization, the aggressive modernization or nationalization efforts of these non-colonized states work? 
were they successful if you if you were to put it in those terms? What is success? <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to hold me to task for that one. Um, would you say that did they grab the international attention that they were trying to grab? The short answer would be yes. A lot of these figures were Western darlings. Atatürk made it to the cover of Time magazine. Uh, people loved Reza Shah in the West. Um, so yeah, the short answer is people or the Western world was welcoming this. Welcoming that a peripheral society had accepted their form of ruling of government as the ideal. Okay, great. So let's move on to your second article. Sure. <laughs> so again, let's. So what is the main argument of your second article, and then we can dissect it more. So the second article is about missionary education in the Ottoman Empire, and there is this understanding in Turkish society that missionaries had an overall negative impact on Turkish society. And the main arguments are, uh, or the central argument that people draw attention to is they created dissatisfaction, they created ethnic segregation, uh, and eventually they created the Armenian and Greek nationalist movements. So... Protestant education, Protestant missionary education in Turkey had an overall detrimental effect on Turkish society. So this is kind of a shared understanding in Turkey, in academia, as well as left and right po politicians. So the starting point for this article was, well, let's try to see what these schools have done as an impact on society. And let's take the central idea that they were crucial in creating Armenian nationalism. And so this was a question I was trying to answer. And uh, I collected a database of Armenian nationalist figures, looked at the schools they graduated from, and tried to understand if there was any link between education and revolutionary activity or nationalist activity. And what did you find? Well, they are rarely, they're out of the hundred individuals in my sample, only two had graduated from missionary schools. The vast majority of Armenian nationalists, and this does not have to be violent, it's just they, the criteria was they had to live in the Ottoman Empire during this time, and they had to want a state, whether semi-autonomous or autonomous. Uh, they wanted a state for the Armenian people. And so this could have been poets, journalists, uh, intellectuals of the time. And yeah, a majority of them were students of Armenian schools, Gregorian Armenian students, uh, which again is kind of scratching at the surface between this connection between education and ideology. Um, so if I can just uh, interject for a second. So if you can explain a little bit of background to our uh, listeners. So 
you're talking about the missionary schools and you're talking about the Armenian schools. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about the school system in general so that we can then compare and contrast um, the different schools that you're looking at. Is it just those two or are you also looking at other schools? So I'll briefly describe the Ottoman educational system. Ottoman Empire was Hanafi, uh, which is a legal school of thought, and they were in Islam, and they were ruled on the basis of Sharia. This meant that the people of the book, that is, Jews and Christians, were semi-autonomous in some respects. Uh, now, it's they were not equals. They had to pay certain taxes to the Ottoman state, unequal taxes, discriminatory taxes. But they could also run their own courts, elect their own officials, and run their own schools. So this had kind of been an informal system that was based on how Muhammad had lived in Medina and interact with the Jewish community there. But the Ottoman Empire starts formalizing the system, especially after the 17th century. And during this time, education was mostly an elite affair. So it's if you're Armenian cleric, if you are a Jewish rabbi, your kids are probably going to get a good education. So private schooling, if you're a banker, if you're a person of high status, you could afford to get a private teacher. So there's no real public schooling until... 1800s, 1900s in the Ottoman Empire. And so the missionaries are entering into a multi-ethnic empire where everyone's kind of semi-autonomous. The Muslims uh, mostly have a Quranic education based on memorization, uh, so madrasa education. And for the Christians, it's this informal system that is becoming more formalized. So enter the missionaries into this whole picture. And this is a very interesting moment in world and American history. There's this crisis that is going on, a lot of modernizing changes. And one reaction is people cling to religion in these moments of crisis. So there is a movement called the Second Great Awakening, which is a Protestant movement in the States. There's all these denominations that are formed. There's a revival of religion in American society. And a particular group says, our goal should be evangelizing not just Americans, but the world. And so American Board of Foreign Commission of Missions sets out to evangelize the world. And this was set up in Boston. They set up in Japan, Hawaii Islands, Indian territories, to use the term of the time, and the United States, Ottoman Empire, Palestine. It's a wide range of regions that they consider infidel. And what do they do here? Well, <laughs> the number one problem they realize is uh, Protestantism is based on understanding the word of God in a very personal matter. They go to these societies, translate Bibles, except no one could read. So they quickly realize that this goal of converting the world population to Protestantism has a major roadblock. So the solution to 
the illiteracy of society was setting up schools. So they quickly become one of the early purveyors of modern education in wherever they went. Um, but the competition aspect of it is they weren't going to empty landscapes. They were going to regions where there were people, Christians, ancient Christians. In the case of the Armenians, Armenians are one of the first uh, people to convert to Christianity. And these Protestants from Boston, frequently, uh, they were all uh, interesting figures had uh, PhD degrees at a time where 0.03% of the population had, you know, an advanced degree and going with their high ideals into these rural peripheral places where they did not speak the language. And so conflict was common under these circumstances. Unsurprisingly. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. And this missionary studies, people have approached it from a lot of different angles. And I think, uh, yeah, the, the whole power dynamic is another. It's a, something I peripherally touch, but it's a whole study on its own. The biases of these people as they went to these different places. Right. So you're for this particular paper, you're looking at the competition aspect between the Armenian schools and these missionary schools. Yes, thank you for bringing me back. Uh, so when I was saying I was trying to challenge this idea, as I do more research, I realized that, sure, the missionaries did not influence the Armenians directly, as in they did not have a large contingent of graduates joining the Armenian nationalist movement, but they did do something else, and uh, they forced the modernization, again, quote-unquote, of these educational systems. So modern education is very different because it, uh, there's a clear class system, there's a curriculum, uh, there are desks, there are chairs, there's a spatial aspect to it. So things we take for granted today were not that common in the 19, early 19th century. Uh, so they come into these societies and start building modern schools and Armenians are in some ways stimulated to react because the consequence of not reacting is losing your flock to the Protestants, which to us, it might seem, well, they're both Christian. What does it matter? But both de denominations are incredibly different. Uh, Armenian Christianity is much more closer to Catholicism. So a lot of rituals... Uh, it's all in the old language. So they're speaking ancient Armenian that most of the people in the congregation don't understand. And uh, the Protestants really provoked a change in the community so that they expanded education beyond major cities because the Protestants cared for the poor ideologically, but also that was the part of the market that was not tapped so they went into rural Armenia and they started setting up schools and the Armenian church had to react. And uh, so what did that reaction look like? So what mm -hmm. if we could, you know, take us there. So what, first of all, is this something that we would have expected? And second of all, what was it? What was the reaction? 
I mean, I'm expecting it just because of the naivety of some of these Protestants. But Protestants were also smart in some ways. They used their technology. So they would come into a city and start setting up common schools. Then they would set up high schools and this would develop. And they would often use science, ironically, which back home in the U.S. they were not fully on board with evolutionary theories, to give one example, but they use it in these societies to lure other populations. Uh, interesting stories from the archives. There's this one story of someone who brings a pocket telescope to a rural village in Anatolia. And he said, I could not convert them with the Bibles, but the moment I pulled out my pocket telescope, I would suddenly have a crowd of 50 people around me. Wow. So... Technology and science and tools became ways of attracting the population. And for the Armenian side, if you did not keep up, you were in a disadvantaged position in the educational market. Uh, so you had to have good schools. You had the schools teaching. You had to have schools teaching French. Uh, you had to have schools that had a lab. You had to teach in the spoken language, which was something that Armenians really did not do until the Protestants enter uh, the market, the educational market. Uh, so they start publishing textbooks, which again is not very common before this period. Having a curriculum, um, having modern school buildings, gym classes, which again the Protestants started in uh, the Middle East. So YMCA, which was kind of a connected offshoot of the missionary organization sets up a lot of the first sports teams in the Middle East. But we quickly again see that the Armenian schools picked us up. So because for a lot of Armenians, they didn't attend the school to convert, they attended the school to get a good education. So they use the missionaries as well. And the missionaries frequently lament this. They're like, oh, we have so many students, but, you know, I forget the... I think less than 1% of the population was converted in the Ottoman Empire. It's a failed project in the Middle East. Right. Um, so it's very interesting, the argument that you're making here. And I, in my head, I can kind of see, I can see a little bit of controversy ar arising uh -huh. from it, yeah, right? Which please. is that, <laughs> so clarify for us. So you are saying that the preconceived notions um, or the general consensus, rather, if I can reframe it more neutrally, the, the general consensus is that missionary education has negative consequences for local communities. Mm -hmm. But are you then arguing that missionary education has positive consequences for local communities through this aspect of competition? I'm not, I guess, placing a value judgment on it i think there's been negative consequences and i think some positive consequences but even let's take modernization uh and speaking in your own language this might have led to some nationalist figures and might have fed into the nationalist movement i'm not going to be here and say the consequences of the nationalist movement and how it I'm not blaming either side. I'm very much, I'm someone who recognizes the Armenian genocide and the violence done against these people. But when we 
transport ourselves back into the time and look at the violence on both sides that was being perpetuated, it's hard to say that that was a positive outcome. Uh, I think development of their educational system definitely was a positive outcome. And uh, sometimes I wonder what it would have been like if this had continued. I think Turkey would have been a drastically different, probably richer place. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think, you know, I'm not putting any of my own kind of opinions into this, but kind of giving you a platform to talk about um, the very provocative argument that you're making, right? Mm -hmm. Which, well, or that you're not making, but that people might interpret you as making, right? Which is, what are you saying about, uh, you know, uh, intervention and 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 uh, colonization and mm -hmm. missionary education. Some people might interpret you as saying that, you know, contrary to popular belief, mm -hmm. the the presence of these schools have led to development, right? Have led mm -hmm. to local development, and competition is the key through which they have led to development. Mm -hmm. And is there is there anything that you would like to respond to that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean. Missionaries on their own do not cause this. That's my main argument. Actually, that's the argument of the third paper. But when you quantitatively, when you look at it, places where just the missionaries operated in score much less in development and literacy. It's only places where local communities were spurred to action that we actually get development. So it's kind of... It, I. I would push back by saying, I guess I am trying to include a local voice in this story, uh, a local voice that has been forgotten. And yeah, the missionary is part of this story, but the missionary on its own also doesn't explain development. Absolutely. Um, I just want to recap a little bit of sure. what we've been saying so far, right? So. Um, your argument overall looks at uh, the socio-structural components of competition in uh, these uh, in colonial times, mm -hmm. or at the onset of colonial times. And so, in your first paper or your first argument, if we frame it differently, is that um, so far we've been looking at. Uh, the impact of colonization on colonized states. But what does it mean when we look at the impact of colonization on non-colonized states? And what you are arguing is that the non-colonized states during this time of coloniality, um, ha what it created in those states being surrounded by uh, European powers colonizing every other uh, state around them was... Um, nationalism, aggressive nationalism, right, which is done through uh, sometimes really harsh me measures, which has terrible social consequences uh, for its populations, and which, uh, leading into your second article, um, changes structures. Mm -hmm. um, and so in your second argument, or your second article, rather, what you're saying is that um, you're looking at missionary schools, not on their own, but you're looking at the impact of these missionary schools on the existing educational structures in the Ottoman Empire. And is mm -hmm. it just the Ottoman Empire that you're looking at in your second article? Or are you looking it's at the other mostly, cases? Yeah, Ottoman Empire. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, so that leads us then to your third article. So let's mm -hmm. move into that. So what's your third article about then? So the third article very much relates to the second. And it's in this world of Ottoman educational 
market is one way of putting it, I guess. I don't want to be too much of an economist. Um, but it came out of a desire to have a data component to that story. And it really came out of my reading of the non-Ottoman literature on missionaries. Because I have talked about how in Turkey, people talk about missionaries having a negative consequence. This is not the case abroad. The majority of the literature in the Western world about missionaries and their impact, the quantitative literature, is overall positive. And uh, this is mostly done by economic historians. And uh, they build their data sets and they say, look, regions that had more intense exposure to missionaries are more developed today. And so I was seeing the Ottoman Empire as this interesting case, as it came out of this archival work. I was seeing this competition dynamic, something that scholars had ignored in other regions of the world. So I decided to build my own database, which was a uh, kind of an insane undertaking, but I, I've really enjoyed the process. And uh, the idea behind it is mapping the locations of the schools and building a database correlating that with contemporary development and contemporary literacy. And to really investigate whether this idea I had that competition is more beneficial to local development, whether this actually uh, was the case. What I really want to spend a lot of time on um, in the next uh, few minutes um, in the methodology section is to talk exactly about that grueling process of oh, mapping yeah. these locations. So I won't get into that just uh -huh. yet. Um, but let's get to the meat of what you found. What was the what was the result? Were you able to find um, you know exact correlations between the locations then and the mm -hmm. uh, the development impacts today? Mm -hmm. So the question of whether missionaries affect development is a negative in Turkey. So this is something that people find in India, South Africa, Guatemala. But when we look at the Ottoman Empire, no, the locations of missionary stations or missionary schools are not related to development in any way in Turkey. And we might provide very contextual factors for that. But to me, that was not really surprising the missionary setup station in a lot of eastern parts of Turkey, which is historically underdeveloped, and because they were catering to a Armenian population there, which that was their homeland. So the more interesting thing I found was when we consider local institution presence and the competition between the missionaries and local institutions, either Ottoman state or Armenian, we find an effect. So where there was competition equally distributed, we do find an effect. Right. On local development, and that is economic development. Right, and I think this kind of goes back to what I was pushing you on earlier, right? Mm -hmm. Is that it's not that same argument that you're making, right? It's actually quite more complex than that. It's mm -hmm. not that you're saying, I'm not going to take any jabs at economists mm -hmm. or anything like that, right? But that when you look at that, when you look at, these variables um, without looking at the nitty gritty that underlies them or the historical aspects that underlies them, 
you are telling the story of colonial c- coloniality uh, leading to development, right? But what sociology can do for us and what history can do for us is to dig a little bit deeper and, like you said, to use your words to bring the local back in. Definitely. I mean, and this is when we go to even societal level and we go to the archives, the picture is very clear to me is that this competition created better schools and created a demand. It's not only the story of the supply, which is the Ottoman state or the Armenian church or the Protestant missionaries coming and deciding to set up schools. I think there is like a demand side too. local populations wanted more education. The more education they receive of a better quality, the more they desired. And this comes out in the archives. Mich- missionaries frequently talk about this for their own purposes sometimes, but they say, okay, so our enrollment figures did not increase for this year, but there's a great desire for education. And you could see this in the Ottoman schools, in the Muslim schools, in the uh, Armenian Gregorian schools. So it's an interesting dynamic, but yeah, it is, it is a story of local actors, but also local populations, not just local elites. I'm interested to know whether or not you have any other kind of qualitative data, whether or not you've looked at it, mm-hmm. right? But maybe for listeners to point them to that direction. Is there any kind of qualitative data that can give us more of a narrative account of those populations. Oh, yeah. One thing that directly pops up into mind, uh, I've discovered this blog, Hushamadian. It's a great resource. It is built by stories and pictures and narratives of Armenian, mostly Armenian populations who had to flee Anatolia, who had to flee Turkey. So uh, this website has been put together by an academic individual who has collected these stories of these regions. I highly recommend it's not just about schooling, but uh, you could go to a particular place in the Ottoman Empire and see what Armenian life was like during that time. And uh, look at the music, look at the culture, look at the food, and a lot of brilliant pictures, uh, people, a lot of families who have kept these souvenirs have uh, taken pictures and donated. And it's very well edited too. I highly recommend it for people. Right. Okay, great. Thank you for that suggestion. I'm, I'll be heading there definitely to check that out. So the competition aspect of this third article then mm-hmm. reinforces what you've said in the, in the second article, but with data. Yeah. Okay, and it's still it's still limited to the Ottoman Empire. Yes, especially the uh, Anatolian region. So what we consider as Asiatic Turkey. Okay, great. So I, I actually think this provides a perfect segue into the methods question, right? Um, which I, I want to spend quite a bit of time on. So what what are the methodologies that you use? You mentioned archival, you mentioned the GIS. And so mm-hmm. tell us a little bit more about these methods and the other ones that you've used. Uh, First paper was mixed methods. It uses statistical methods, simple OLS, uh, using and combining different databases I have found on ethnic civil wars. Uh, Second one is purely archival. 
that is based on uh, missionary archives and Ottoman state archives uh, in Istanbul, Ankara, and also uh, Boston for the missionary archives, uh, Houghton Library at Harvard. And the third one talks about uh, competition using data and it uses GIS analysis, so geographic information systems. Great. Okay, let's dissect those. So OLS, um, I'm not going to ask you to explain <laughs> the statistics behind OLS, but for the non-statisticians or the non-sociologists or, you know, just um, uh, people who are coming at this from a pr completely different discipline, um, tell us a little bit more about that data that you used and, and um, you know, if you could put it in layman ter layman's mm -hmm. terms, what an OLS regression is. So, I mean, I use OLS and I use Logit. These are models for finding correlations, basically, between a dependent variable, your outcome, and trying to explain it with independent variables. So these are your explanatory factors. So for me, the dependent variable would be uh, occurrence of secessionist war. So this is a one or a zero. So this would mean it's a Logit analysis. And then I would try to explain this with common themes in the literature. So does this country have a federalist structure? What is its GDP? What is the diversity measure that is used? Uh, how diverse that society is? Uh, population size, territory size, number of borders. So I chuck in all of these independent variables. And obviously, one of them for me matters more and I want to see if it wins out against all the rest. For me that is non-colonialism so that again is a one or a zero it's a category and after running these models I look at my results and I see which are significant as in which has a correlation that is generalizable. This does not mean it explains it but it shows that there is a statistical association and this personally is a great powerful tool uh, but I think it comes short because as you will hear in any statistics 101 class uh, correlation is not causation so I love using this to leverage an association and then dive deeper into that, those cases saying look there's a general trend Let's try to understand this trend qualitatively. Mm. And that's where uh, the archival and the historical work come in. Great. And so just before we go into the archival work and the uh, geoplotting that you did, um, I just want to ask you one methodological choice mm -hmm. between your first article and your last two articles. Sure. So why did you choose to include the other uh, non-colonial states in your first article mm -hmm. and not in the second and third? Non-colonialism is part of the story for me in the second and third. It's just uh, not at the forefront. But to me, the non-colonial nature comes out uh, when we talk about education, because if you're educating, if Protestants enter a colonized region and they're educating there, then they also have colonial governments to deal with colonial governments control indigenous education in those societies too. So I think one reason why competition 
really comes to the forefront in the Ottoman Empire is the non-colonial status. So you did not have colonial governments to protect the missionaries. But you also had a local state which was reacting against the missionaries too. Right. Right. Okay, great. So moving on to your archival data. <sighs> archival, <laughs> archival data. data. <laughs> it's the best of times. It's the worst of times. Ah, oh, couldn't have said it better myself. So Delvin, tell us, tell us how much time did this take you? Uh, I went uh, in spurts, probably. I went to archives in Harvard for two, three weeks. Then I did another two, three weeks the next year. I also did a summer in Turkey. And I say the best of times, the worst of times, because it is really like detective work, which is the joy and the pain. And you're there uh, and you, there you go through a catalog, you find things that are interesting to you, and you call them to your table. It's a library situation that is much more controlled. Um, you can't take in pens, you can't take in anything you could write on the archival documents with. And then you sit there. You sit there for a full day, trying to first decipher the handwriting of the person. And then once you do, you're skimming stories, and a lot of the stories are irrelevant. So it's a lot of mining for golden quotes or golden data or things you are particularly looking for. Uh, but when you do find it, it's an incredible feeling because you feel like a pioneer in some way. You're, you're there, you have accounts of what happened during that particular time, and you have this intimate access that I, you know, I don't get with other forms of data. Right. And so you were looking, you said for your second article, you traced, uh, was it journals, you said, of the nationalist Turks? Uh, so nationalist Armenians, I created a database and that was done uh, using this, this Armenian source I had. Uh, but I also looked at schooling histories in particular locations and looked at when they were built, in what succession, uh, what did the missionaries think of the new school that was built? What did the Armenians say? What did the Ottomans say? So I was trying to untangle those connections that I saw was happening. Okay. How long were each of these documents? They change. Uh, some of them are letters to close friends. Uh, some of them are articles they have written in major newspapers. Some of them are memos. Uh, some of them are financial documents. Uh, it's just a mixture. Uh, with with this, uh, the ABCFM, which is the shorthand for the missionary organization, uh, they were great record keepers. So the archives are pretty well organized. Uh, the Ottoman ones, less so. Okay. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I guess for you, you didn't have the language barriers. So Ottoman Turkish is different. I have like a basic understanding that allows me to read 19th century texts. Um, the, our missionary archives were in English and for the Armenian sources, I actually got some help from friends that spoke Armenian. And did you have to bring those friends with you to the archives? No, I would scan the documents and send them to them. Yeah. Okay. That's nice to have, uh, yes, it was good <laughs> diversity in your friends. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and okay, so for the missionary, let's zoom in on the missionary uh-huh. uh, archives. So um, you were looking. Uh, tell us a little bit more about those. Give us some more details about the missionary archives. So the missionary archives, again, journals, uh, letters to friends, to family, um, reports, annual reports were very common, and yeah, newspaper articles. And uh, I just had to go through all of them. But what I usually did was, let's say, there was a locale I was interested in. So Elazığ Harput. Elazığ is the modern Turkish name. Harput is the Armenian uh, Ottoman times. They called it Harput too, but it's its old name. So looking at that, zooming into that locale, which was vibrant for educational competition. And first, what I had to do was found out which missionary was stationed there. So that took some work. Which years, when... Then you went to the private collection of that particular missionary. So, and picked the date ideally when they started working there. So then you just start reading. And uh, I chose one of the worst uh, people with the worst handwriting, <laughs> which took a while. But there's a learning curve. You, there, there's a threshold where you kind of get used to it, but it's a lot of cursive. Right. Yeah. Any letters or any archival material that you found that stood out? Anything, mm-hmm. you know, particularly um, funny maybe mm-hmm. or something that stood out to you that you want to share with the listeners? One of the most beautiful moments I had, I was looking through a female missionary. And this is actually another side of this missionary story was they were often the first to set up uh, schools for girls. So this is a missionary who was in Hachin. Uh, which is close to kind of uh, Aleppo, I guess, on the Turkish border, Uh, somewhat more inland, but close to that region. And she had set up a school there for girls, for Armenian girls. I was going through a diary, and I found a pressed flower from the 1800s. That was a nice thing to find. Yeah. That's lovely. Yeah, that she had put in there. Uh, others, there were always funny stories interacting with the students, uh, and some of them showing, you know, how clever the students were actually. Yeah. So yeah, there, there was one story about, I think it was a math problem, uh, something to do with, there's three crows on a bar and, uh, you know, what would happen if I took one of them out? Something like this. And, you know, the missionary is trying to give a practical answer and, you know, ask this to the students and the students uh, all this one student raises their hand immediately. And this missionary is like, yes, the student is like, you would have none. And the missionary is like, how is this possible? Three minus one. You don't have none. And the kid's like, well, if you threw that stone, the rest of them would fly away. <laughs> so, ah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, stories like this were always fun to come across. Yeah, great, awesome. Okay, let's move to your uh, GIS data. Uh huh. So also grueling. So I actually had the privilege to read your third article, so I I'm a little bit more familiar with it. So tell us tell us about this process. This process again, it's it's part of a story that I'm trying to make sense of how I got there, but I had the time and the energy to learn something new, and I had this idea. So I took a GIS course at the geography department at McGill, and they have this nice center with uh, a lot of graduate advisors and workshops, and it's a wonderful learning environment. 
And uh, I started charting the locations of these schools geographically. And I used an old map, uh, old Ottoman map from 1893. I traced its borders. I stretched it onto the globe. I started going through missionary archives, finding the locations of each of these schools. I found the locations of Ottoman schools and Armenian schools. And then I had to find all of these variables that might also affect development, which is trading routes, major ports, um, distance to border, stuff like that. And so the data set grew and grew and grew. And the idea was getting all these historical variables and seeing if they impact our society today. So that's where I collected some data on nighttime lights, uh, which are these, you've probably seen them before. They're satellite images of the globe and the major cities and how much, well, light pollution pictures, basically. Uh, but economists have found that they're great proxies as a, they, they proxy economic development perfectly. 0.9798, I think. So you can get a lot of information on very village-level data. So I combined all of them, and uh, I did my analysis. And how long did this take you? Oh, yeah, the question. <laughs> so it's um, drawing the borders. I started learning GIS in about a year ago, maybe a bit more. Uh, drawing the borders took about three, four months, I'd say. And then I just, I have been adding data since. I'd say maybe the master data set has only been complete a month ago. So nearly a year. I would imagine that that was the most difficult task of all of your data analysis, right? It was just like having to redraw these borders <laughs> on a completely different world map. I, I, I can't even imagine having to undertake something like that. It was actually a bit insane. And like, um, I was coming across, you know, as you do, as you try to publish something, you're out looking for similar articles. And I'd seen some other people, scholars trying to do similar things, but they had skipped that step, which is take four months of your life to draw these borders. But you know, I, I look really favorably upon that. Like I would go to the GIS lab, put on my podcasts, I'd be there for six hours and I'd be doing this mechanical thing, but I felt like productive right? and moving somewhere, you know, and uh, which is sometimes you don't get with the writing process. Right. And was there, were there any of the schools that you couldn't find through the process of redrawing? Uh, so I was able to code 97, 98% of all missionary stations. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. And perhaps this is a time to get into, the major challenge or the major labor of this. The drawing was fine. It was very mechanical. The biggest challenge by far was finding out where these missionaries opened shop because they would go to a village where they didn't speak the language. There is no standardization, no road signs, no village sign. And uh, again, they didn't speak the language. So they would transliterate whatever the locals told them and so the local would say you are in Hoeli and they would say they would write it one way in one archive write it another in another archive 
write it another way in the third archive. And the other part is, Hueli doesn't exist anymore because it's an Armenian name. And so Turkey, in this aggressive nationalism phase, changed 40% of its villages' names. So this is a huge amount, basically erased any evidence of a multi-ethnic, multi-religious past. And uh, that was the big challenge. How to find this name, which is already written inconsistently, and match it to a modern existing locality. So how did you find it? Did you have like a list and then eventually you compiled like a reference? I I had a massive Google Excel sheet and I would catalog the various ways, variations of the name and I would kind of triangulate. So there were multiple sources I was using. There's because of these destroyed villages, uh, there's a kind of a small literature on old names uh, in Anatolia. So I would get those books. I would also get uh, Armenian life in the Ottoman Empire before the genocide, books like this, which actually lists all these villages. So it was a lot of like finding that and finding this and uh, trying to find, uh, yeah, trying to make sure that it is exactly that spot. The challenge, the major challenge was uh, people in 19th century weren't very imaginative with their names. So uh, (laughs) you get this in Turkish names and in Armenian and Turkish names. Yeah, there's a lot of similar village names. Same thing with Armenian. They would call a lot of places Vank, which means monastery or gorge or city, (laughs) right? So... Which Vank is the real Vank was another big question I had to deal with. And and going in, so when you were doing the archival data, mm-hmm. did you know that you were going to be doing the GIS or were you? No. <laughs> so you didn't have, you didn't visualize that you would be, did you have to go back and like relook at the archival data after doing the GIS work? Yeah, I went back. I went back and... <laughs> I basically scanned uh, a lot of things. I went back for another two weeks and uh, I went into the archives and scanned their annual reports, which is a great source for uh, the list of places they worked in. Right. So you you did the archival work. (laughs) You decided that you were going to do the GIS. You, uh, you know, based on what you found, uh, found as many as you could, I would imagine, uh, of the schools plotted them, redrew the borders. Uh, does it automatically put it into the new map for you after you redraw, or do you have to replot after redrawing the borders? Uh, you could have an Excel sheet with latitude, longitude, okay. and you could upload that Excel into GIS software, and okay. so that will plot that Excel sheet for you. Okay, well, at least there's that. So, yes, I did not go through that extra step. <laughs> and then you had to go back, uh, you know, verify the ones that you were missing. And yeah. then also, I think part of the challenge is this like back and forth, right? Mm-hmm. Looking at these other sources, triangulating, cross-referencing to see, like you said, <laughs> which city is this city. Um, mm-hmm. And and so collectively, this took you over a year to do. Yeah, I'd say over a year. And this is the... Uh, I just recently went to a 
Social Science History Associations Conference, and the theme was data. And this is classic historical data issues. It's cumbersome, and it takes a long time to compile. And so, yeah, we do find some there. I'm not the first to use GIS in history, but it's not very common because of the amount of time and energy. You For a big project, you really need a group of people working on this. Right. Okay, well, thank you for sharing and thank you for doing the work, right? Because now, uh, is this is is the uh, work that you've done something that other people can use to, to... definitely, yeah. And I I do want to make it public, yeah. Once it's out there, I really want to share this data and uh, start a conversation. I I wish to have a website where people could add their own data points, and hopefully, one out should of this project for me is not just quantitative work looking at correlates of development, but also unearthing this other life that was kind of like what this Hushamadian blog is doing, but visualizing it data wise. Well, we, when that does come to fruition, make sure you share it with us because, you know, we in search, we will we will put it for other people to be able to access as well. I think it's really important that you're doing the work and it should be accessible and it should mm. be something that other people can draw on. I hope so. Yeah, I'll definitely share. OK, great. Um, so let's just move on to the last two questions. Um, so we've kind of already talked about the conversations that you're contributing mm -hmm. to through our conversation um, uh, here today. So, um, but is there anything else that you'd like to add in terms of uh, the literature, the conversation? We know that you're talking to um, economists. We know that you're talking to, uh, you know, uh, people who are doing decoloniality work mm -hmm. and uh, impacts of colonization work. Mm -hmm. What are the other conversations that you're contributing to with your research? Yeah, I think post-colonialism is there in the backdrop for me. And I think we've talked about this before too, but the tabula rasa idea of colonial lands being devoid of any culture or civilization, this is something I'm kind of pushing back against. Uh, economists using GIS and kind of adding a sociological understanding to that definitely uh, Turkish nationalists uh, of all flavors who believe that Protestant education directly contributed to something. I'm, uh, I'm speaking to that literature. And I guess underneath all of this, there is some aspects of religion, culture and development, which is a whole another uh, important literature in so uh, sociology. I don't dive into it too much, but that is also a dialogue that's being had. Right. Okay, great. And then uh, finally, what are your desired practical outcomes for this research, right? So as opposed to, uh, like, what are the outcomes that you think are actually tangible as opposed to the more broader outcomes that you mm -hmm. hope? I think the tangible ones, starting with the data, I think making that data set available, starting a data-driven history niche in Ottoman studies is the most direct impact I could see. Um, other than that, though, it's not just historians or sociologists, but people looking at historical memory in these lands, which is an important thing that comes up. What is this life before the genocide? What is this life in Anatolia that was diverse, that was competitive? Um, and kind of unearthing that and all this village names that I have found 
it's in a database now and people could add their own village names. And I hope this will kind of start a conversation about the life at the end of the Ottoman Empire and the multicultural, multi-ethnic nature of it. Right. And I, another thing I, I'm wondering is whether or not you'd like to, I mean, I would like to see this come out of your project, right? Which is this ongoing um, introjection of social science into, um, you know, the more qualitative aspects of sociology and what mm -hmm. it can add to these kind of um, broader narratives that are oftentimes very politically charged. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really, really difficult sometimes to have in this day and age, right? Uh, I think I think we've come to a point of uh, a lot of politically charged and politically heated conversations, right? So mm -hmm. projects like yours mm -hmm. are really important because they tell us a more enriched story, um, but they also give us an objective basis uh, through which we can analyze otherwise uh, tumultuous and just politically fraught conversations. So mm -hmm. are there practical desired outcomes that you have there? Yeah, I think having a more honest conversation about history that is grounded in empirics, that's a hoped outcome. And yeah, I mean, even let's take this missionary involvement in Turkey. It's an incredibly charged conversation. Or the impact of colonialism on modern societies, right? I don't really touch into that because my focus is non-colonized countries, but that's an incredibly charged conversation. So yes, these are incredibly charged conversations, but I think I'm not trying to ignore the charged nature of them by inserting data, but I think it is, it is a kind of distancing that happens. And it's another angle to look at the situation. I think that's a perfect way to end. Um, I want to thank you again so much. Is there anywhere, um, any literature, any website or anything that you would like to direct us toward uh, for listeners to, to head to? Not off the top of my mind. I guess uh, <laughs> Academia EDU is a place to access our, all of our research, PhD students' research. I have a few stuff there. Uh, but... Once the data analysis for the GIS is done, I would like to have some pretty maps online as well. Okay, great. And we'll be sure to direct our listeners to that as well. Emery, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I wish you the best of luck in your future research endeavors. Thank you so much for having me. And I'd just like to say this is a great idea for a podcast. I hope the listeners are getting something out of it like I am, I definitely got something out of it. I think it's helped me contextualize my research much more. So thanks for inviting me. I'm so glad to hear that. Best of luck. Thank you. That just about does it for today's episode. Once again, we want to thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the In Search podcast. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts about the show. Hit us up on Twitter at Podcast InSearch or send us an email at InSearchPodcast at gmail.com. If you have original research that you'd like to share and you want to be on our show, please check out the show notes where you'll find details on how to contact us. Make sure to tune in to next episode where we interview a researcher in the field of cognitive neuropsychology who does work with attention and memory as it pertains to learning, a subject that's very near and dear to our hearts here at the podcast. Once again, we appreciate you listening to the InSearch podcast. Stay curious.